0: I uh, wonder if the, uh, bringing a sledgehammer to the wine night to knock down the uh, liquor store. Uh, So, no, wine and cheese, that sounds like a fun night. Thank you so much. It's so great to hear. uh, It's just so great to be partnered with you in an official way as a church, and uh, so thankful for By the Hand, and uh, just great to, thank you so much for being here. Um, If you are able, please rise for the reading of God's word. There's three readings today, four I should say. I'm going to read the first three now. I'm going to save the fourth for the end of the sermon. I'm actually not going to read every single verse of that one. Um, That's actually the one we will look at most closely. The last one from John 8, uh, I almost decided not to read it this morning. I'm not going to address it, but it is a clear picture uh, of Jesus dealing tenderly with sexually broken uh, people. But here now, the reading of God's word from Exodus, Proverbs, and the eighth chapter of John. This is God's word. Exodus chapter 20 verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. From Proverbs chapter 5 beginning in verse 15, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. And then John chapter 8, early in the morning, he, Jesus, came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placed her in the midst. They said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? This they said to test them, that they might have some charge to bring against him. She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I commend you, condemn you. Go from now on and sin no more. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Do keep that passage in front of you as we'll be coming back to the Corinthians passage. Let me pray, though. God, we come now to your word. And what it has to say to us about sex and even sexual immorality. And this is something that touches every single one of us. It touches us all in different ways, but it touches all of us. We are all sexually broken people. And so, God, I pray that the words of my mouth will be pleasing to you. And our thoughts would as well be renewed by your word. Would you be with us, Lord? For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Well, if you've been with us, we're in the midst of a sermon series on the Ten Commandments. The uh, the series title is Learning to Live by Grace, and we're going through each of the Ten Commandments, and I'm stopping and spending two weeks on three of the commands, and I'm choosing those three commands because I think they're the ones that hit us most closely. We spent two weeks on work and rest. Uh, Almost everyone within the sound of my voice struggles with work and rest, being workaholics, type A, North Shore type of people. Uh, And then we're going to spend two weeks on money and stewardship and generosity. But these two weeks, actually two weeks ago and then this Lord's Day, we're talking about sex. And so why are we talking about sex? There's several reasons. First of all, our culture is obsessed with sex and never satisfied with it. And frankly, there's so many who are hurting because of of our sexual lives the sexual our culture around us says do whatever you want with whomever you want whenever you want and frankly that's not leading us to a very good place as a culture there's not a lot of flourishing and that is to say nothing of the very real issue that affects many in this room of abuse and rape unplanned pregnancies broken hearts affairs there is a great tenderness around our sexuality, and God really likes to draw near to us in the things that we know best and care about most. It's important to talk about sex because the Bible talks about sex a lot. Sex is literally alluded to on the first page of the Bible and the last page of the Bible and everywhere in between. But we're also talking about sex because as we saw two weeks ago, every single one of us, think about your body for just a moment. Your actual body, your flesh and blood, is actually asking a question. There's something about your body and my body that is incomplete. This is the male and female dynamic. And that question that your body is asking is telling you that you are alone, but also that you are built to be in relationship. You are built to be connected to other people metaphorically and also literally. As humans, we long for relationship. We long for communion. It is a fundamental fact of being human. And this is inextricably tied to our bodies and to sex. But another reason I want to talk about sex is because the biblical story offers great hope and healing and redemption to us as individuals. And because of that, I'm hoping our church can increasingly create a culture where people can find redemption and where sex can be all that is meant to be, where we are hostage neither to the soul-sucking cultural view of sex nor to the purity cult that we see in so many evangelical circles. And I believe that our view of the human body, our view of sex... Dare I say that our experience of sex should be attractive to outsiders. I said two weeks ago that our sex should be evangelistic. And several of you what do you mean by that? Well, I don't know exactly what I mean, but it's right. (laughs) But stay with me, okay? Because it doesn't mean that we go around parading our sex lives or talking about our sex lives, although we should talk about them more than we do. What it does mean is that we want a church culture that prizes marriage with white, hot passion, full of joy and hope and pleasure and enjoyment. The image of husbands and wives walking down the street, holding hands together because they love each other. That we create a culture that celebrates and includes single people. That includes... We create a culture that rallies to people who are hurting and have been hurt by sex, comes alongside victims of sexual pain. That is what I mean when I say the church can be evangelistic when it comes to sex, because we can be wildly attractive to our children and to the watching world that is so broken when it comes to sex. The thing that, the, the thing that culture is telling us it's not working. And nobody thinks it is. But we have a beautiful sexual ethic in the scriptures. Christopher West, who I referred to last week, he says it this way. I I like this guy. Uh, He says this, there will be no renewal of the church and the world. There will be no renewal of the church and the world without a renewal of marriage and the family. And there will be no renewal renewal of marriage and family without a return to the full truth of God's plan for and sexuality. He goes on to say, this, I like this guy, he says, we ought to be, he, says this, he says, we ought to be able to walk into college fraternity parties where people are getting high, getting drunk, seeking illicit sex, and going to these fraternities, I used to work on campus, I, I, this, maybe I should do this, and walk in and say, do you know what you really want here? What you are looking for is a cheap imitation of something that is so good and so beautiful and so powerful. So if a Northwestern student wants to take me, I might go with you and do that because I think he's right. I think he is right. And as we live out the God-given order of sex and sexual ecstasy even, we are creating room for good things to run wild. As I said last week, our culture is confused about sex and gender, and we will not have an impact. There'll be zero impact by making arguments and saying what we believe. We have to tell a better story, and more importantly, we have to Live a better story, a story of hope, joy, and goodness. So today, sex, part two. Two weeks ago was kind of a biblical theology of sex. Uh, as I told you then, I'm kind of working out the way I think about this, and it's been a really fruitful study for me. Today's a little bit more practical, although I cannot cover everything. Uh, I'm particularly sad that I'm not going to cover as much as I would like about singleness today. So four things, though, I want to talk about. I want to talk a brief overview of sex Uh, Different ways of thinking about sex. Secondly, the power of sex. Third, the context of sex. And then fourth, when we'll look at 1 Corinthians, the redemption of sex. Now first, the history or the overview of sex. This is from my notes, but if I know myself, I had to guess, I probably got some version of this from uh, something I heard Tim Keller say sometime. But five different views of sex. I think you'll resonate with, you'll understand this when I say these. The first view of sex is that sex is just like an animal appetite. That we get hungry and we eat, we feel sexy and we do sex. It's just something that animals do. We are animals, and it's simply an animal appetite. The second view of sex, let's call the platonic view of sex or the pietist view of sex, considers sex and our actual bodies as dirty. Okay, that we this is not something to be avoided. This is the platonic or the pietist that we want to we want to back away from that. Yes, it's necessary to kind of procreate the race, uh, but our bodies are dirty and uh, this is not a good thing. Sex is not a good thing. A third view of sex is the romantic view, that sex is about self-expression. It's a chance for me to express myself. The fourth view of sex is that sex, and this is kind of what the Me Too uh, movement exposed, sex is about a power exchange, where I use my power to suppress someone else. And if I have less power, it may be a way to try to get better, uh, but it is about power. Sex is about power. And if you think about today's culture, what is the phrase? We talk about the hookup culture, uh, where sex is considered not a big deal, right? It's just something you do. It's just a transaction, something to do to feel good. There's no deep meaning to it. I mean, literally, the metaphor is hooking up, like you're plugging in. Like you're plugging in your phone, you're plugging in your body because the power is low. That Hookup culture is kind of a combo of several of those. But last week we looked at the Christian view of sex. And here in just a few uh, sentences is the Christian view of sex. That sex is created, was created by a personal God and is therefore good. God created sex. It was his idea. And it is meant for our pleasure. It is meant for procreation. It is designed for us to give and receive love and to give and receive pleasure. And as we looked at two weeks ago... This actually, I think, explains the power and the... Why is sex so powerful? Why is it so alluring? Because sex points to, it is a sign unto the love of God. We talked about the Trinity two weeks ago, that God exists as a single God with three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in an eternal exchange of love. God loves himself, Father, Son, and Spirit. And he wants us, God does, to know that experience of self giving love and one of the ways he wants us to know that and helps us to do so is by giving us the gift of sex which is to say sex is a signpost pointing to eternity sex is like this way to glory this way to glory so those are the kind of the five views of sex animal platonic sex is dirty romantic self-expression power exchange and then what i want to call the christian view of sex which is giving of yourself And experiencing the love of God. So let's look secondly though at the power of sex. The power of sex. And all you have to do is turn on your TV or look on the internet this afternoon. Sex sells. Sex is powerful. Sex is like nuclear power. Uh, It's like nuclear power. What can nuclear power do? Nuclear power can create great harm. Hiroshima can destroy cities. But nuclear power can also light up a power grid. It can give us light to live by. Sex is like that. It is nuclearly powerful. And I want to say seven things about the power of sex. The first two are obvious, and I'll be brief, but they need stating. The first thing about the power of sex is God created sex. Think about this. You know this. This is so self-evident, but God created sex with the power to produce children. Now, that's like the most self-evident thing I've ever said. But think about it. Having sex produces another immortal soul. Like, that's really powerful, okay? Sex has the power to produce children. Second, you know this as well. God created sex with a powerful way to give and receive pleasure, okay? Sex is one of the most intense pleasures known to human beings. As I've alluded to, the intensity of the feeling, the intensity of the feeling is a foretaste of the glory of heaven. Ecstasy, unrivaled rapture, bounteous, beautiful bliss. God created sex to produce children, but also to give us great pleasure. Those are the first two two. are self-obvious. Ob- Third, and a little more in-depth, sex is a powerful force that unites two people. As we will see in a minute, sex is, in the con- is given to us by God in the context of marriage, one man, one woman in the context of marriage. We'll talk about that in a moment. But sex is, so it's in the context of marriage. And what is marriage? Uh, This is a whole other sermon. But marriage is taking two people, a man and a woman, and binding them together spiritually, emotionally, intellectually, intellectually, uh, uh, economically, physically. It is taking two people, as we saw last week, the two shall become one flesh. It's taking two separate people and making a third thing and uniting them in every single way. And sex is living out, it's acting out that unity. But it's not just acting out that unity, it's actually designed to create and strengthen that unity, to make you more bonded, united to that other person, to create an emotional intimacy and strength that is not reproducible any other way. Which is why we say the people on their wedding night, what do they do? They consummate their marriage. Right, That is the coming together of a husband and wife when they make love. Because sex is saying with your body, in a way that feels good to both parties, hopefully, you know that promise I made to you? It's true. And I'm using body language to express it to you completely and exclusively. You see, when you sleep with someone, your body is making a promise Your body is making a promise, even if your words don't say it. I love what the uh, Australian pastor and theologian Peter Jensen says. This is a vivid image. He says, sex is like super glue. It's a little irrational and stupid. It's very effective if used properly. It unites and bonds with extraordinary speed with real deep bonding. But with super glue, you must be careful where you stick it. Because... Sorry, because, not really, sorry, not sorry, because if it's torn apart, it becomes very ugly. Make sure you know what you're trying to glue together. Sex is powerful because it unites. And so connected to this, and fourthly, sex is a powerful communication tool. When you give yourself to another person in full nakedness, you are saying, I belong to you. I love you, I respect you, I trust you with my body, with my naked body. It is a profound form of communication. It is literal body language. And because of this, sex is a great, and this is going to be convicting for some. Because of this, sex is a great thermometer in your marriage. It tells you the heat, it tells you how things are going. If a, if a, if a wife is feeling loved and cherished, it will show in the bedroom. So is the flip side. If a man is feeling respected and loved and cherished, it will show in the bedroom. And so is the flip side. It's a thermometer telling us what is happening in our marriage. But it's also this. It's not just a thermometer that kind of tells us the temperature of our marriage. It's also like a seismograph machine. You know those seismograph machines that can detect the, the slightest tremor in the earth? If your sex life is off just a bit, it usually points to something. Maybe it's some stress in your spouse. Maybe it's something in your marriage. Maybe it has something to do with the kids. Something at work. Maybe something more significant. But it tells something that is happening. It's a great communication tool. It tells us the heat of our marriage, but it also can pick up the tremors. This is one of the reasons sex is so important. And this, I, this is a dangerous thing I'm about to say, and this is not from the Scripture. This is, you know, the, the Apostle Paul says, that the Lord says this, and I say this. I'm saying, Marshall is saying this, but I think this is right. All things being equal age pregnancy health there's a lot of different factors here but if you're married your se- your sexual life ought to be active at least at least weekly All right and if you have not had sex with your spouse in a long time do not panic but think about it pray about it work on it speak to someone and i, I weekly I'm, I'm going on the low side it actually probably ought to be more than that which brings me to the fifth thing about sex and its power Sex can be powerful for emotional healing. John White says this The immediate erotic thrill is the most superficial benefit of the sex act. The bodily exposure that arouses and accompanies it can be both profoundly symbolic and powerfully healing. Sex can be the healing, concrete sign of what is happening in the whole relationship. The uncovering of our inner selves, our deepest hearts, and yearnings, end quote. What he is saying is as your body is caressed by someone who loves you and is fully committed to you, it is also a tender caressing of your inmost self. Sex can be profoundly healing on an emotional and spiritual level. The fifth way, that sixth way, excuse me, that sex is powerful. This is a bit abstract, but I think it's important. Sex actually has the power. It's not alone in this, but it has the power to help you become your best self. I alluded to two weeks ago that I've learned a lot, not reading Pope John Paul II directly, but people who have read him and talked about him. But this is a quote from Pope John Paul II in his Theology of the Body. He says, he writes, it's amazing, he writes this as a man who never married, never had sex, I assume he says this the pope john paul ii every man and woman fully realizes himself or herself through the sincere gift of self you realize yourself through the gift of yourself for spouses i pick the quote back up for spouses the moment of conjugal union constitutes a very particular expression of this you see, friends, in the, that's the end quote. In the best moments and the best marriages, sex is about giving love and giving pleasure. And when you give love, you are most like God himself. This is a flesh, I, I think I'm right in saying this is a lesson, frankly, that more men than women need to learn. Sex is at its best when it is about giving love and pleasure. And this brings us to the seventh thing of the power of sex. Sex has power. I'd never thought about this. Sex has power to help you understand God's love. you ever bothered by the fact when it says that God is jealous, his love is jealous? Well, God's love, God loves us more deeply than we can fully understand. And he has created us with these deep emotions, these deep longings, yes, jealous love, so that we might understand his love for us. And the joy of a jealous love that is fully committed to him and never wants to break that vow. You know, we, you know the, the Bible talks so much about the way when God's people wander from him. I mean, it talks about, like, they're, they're, they're adulterous, they're adulterous, they're, they're, they're not true to me. But as we understand just how much God loves us and is committed to it and is jealous for our love, we start to learn a little bit more about how we can love God and the beauty of that jealous love. Some of you know the name Alfred Kinsey the famous sex researcher of the last century. And Alfred Kinsey, the very famous Kinsey Report, and Alfred Kinsey was like, sex is, you know, it's just something you do. It's an animal instinct. It's a neutral thing. You know, it's, there's nothing more than an animal act that's happening here. But then, when he kind of got beyond his research and started to dabble in sexual experimentation himself, guess who was deeply troubled? His wife. Why? Because it is in wired, it's wired in us that this matters. She was jealous. Of course she was. He was saying it's just, it's just not, I'm just dabbling around here, just trying different things, you know, with my research. No, this is serious. The strong emotions that sex engenders help us understand just how much God loves us and his jealous love for us. Let me say something real briefly to students high school, and college students. This is why the race to be the most casual about sex, to be super cool, super detached, super disconnected, have as many partners as you can and as many experiences, and like, that is a lie. That is a suppression of the truth. Nobody is that disconnected when you use your body like this. It is powerful. So for all of these reasons, sex is profoundly powerful. And precisely because it is so powerful... There are limits, there is a context. It's not just anyone, anywhere. Which brings us to the context, the limits of sex. So the Bible is clear, as I'll demonstrate in just a second, that precisely because sex is so good, so powerful, so special, it is reserved for husband and wife in the context of marriage. Husband, sex is about oneness. And if you're having sex with someone you're not married to, it is a violation of that oneness. The Bible is clear about this from stem to stern. Uh, it literally makes one of the Ten Commandments, do not commit adultery, our commandment for the day. Uh, Leviticus 18 is this listing of all different types of sex that are outside the lines, outside of the context. And then you get to the New Testament, Romans chapter 1, 1 Corinthians 6, Ephesians 5, all reinforce this. I mean, in fact, if you were to go back and read Leviticus 18 and 1 Corinthians 6 and Ephesians 5, you would see, by the way... The Bible is not surprised by what we see around us in the culture. Uh, Pornography, pedophilia, the internet, all of that. The Bible is not surprised by any of that. And the ancient cultures had some of the same. Obviously not the internet, but the same uh, different forms of sex that we see today. And then Jesus actually takes this commandment and he intensifies it. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, he says this. You have heard what it says, you shall not commit adultery. But Jesus says, but I say to you. Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus intensifies the command. And those are the commands. I'm not going to take time to talk about the examples in Scripture, but every instance of sexual immorality in the Scriptures wreaks havoc on the people's lives. The most famous example is probably uh, King David. Sex is powerful, so it must be treated with care in the context of marriage. Now, this does not mean this is... So sexual fidelity is not about avoiding risk. Sexual fidelity is not about avoiding fun. But in the words of the former Archbishop of Canterbury Rowan Williams, sexual fidelity is creating a context in which grace can abound. Or to quote G.K. Chesterton, where good things can run wild. I've already compared uh, sex to nuclear power. Let me use a similar metaphor. Sex is like fire, okay? Sex is like fire. And if you have a fire in your home, in your fireplace, it's wonderful. Fire has the power to give pleasure. It can warm up a room. It's just nice to have a fire in your house, in the fireplace. And in the same way, sex has the power to strengthen a marriage. Sex has the power to build a family. Sex has the power to give you great pleasure. Sex, like fire, can be very good. But if you light a fire in the middle of your living room, you will burn the place down. And if you take sex outside of marriage, it will burn your life down. Several so years ago, Wendy Plump, uh, not, not a Christian, not a Christian, was, wrote an article in the New York Times. Uh, the title of the article was A Room Full of Yearning and Regret. A Room Full of Yearning and Regret. She writes this. She said, I have had an affair and I have been the victim of an affair. And when you unfurl these two experiences in the sunlight for comparison and measure their worth and pain, the former is only marginally better than the latter. And both, frankly, are awful. She describes being the one who did the cheating. She's describing her own experience of entering into an affair. You'll hear yourself saying you cheated because your needs weren't being wet. The spark was gone. You were bored in your marriage. Your lover understands you better. One or another version of this excuse will cross your lips some dark, knee-jerk, hallmark card sentiment. I'm not saying, she writes, these le- feelings aren't legitimate. I'm just saying they don't legitimize what you're doing. And towards the end of the article, she speaks of her parents. She says this about her parents. I look at my parents and how much simpler their lives are at the age of 75, mostly because they haven't marred the landscape with grand-scale deceit. They have this marriage of 50-some years behind them, and it's a monument to success. A few weeks or months of illicit passion could not hold a candle to it. That's like a commentary on Proverbs 5, the verses that I just read. So I hope you see that this command, do not commit adultery, this is not about repression, this is not about suppression, this is about a good, loving God. Because sex is so good, God has created a place for us, because it is so powerful, He has created a context for it. So, if you are honest, I hope you are, we are all sexually broken. And if you're thinking about your own life, you have to be thinking, is there hope? Is there redemption? I have such good news for you. I have such good news for you and for me. Because, friends, this is why Jesus came, to bring us hope, to bring us Healing. This brings us finally and forth to the redemption of sex. Turn in your bulletin to page eight. I'm not going to read all of it, but I'm going to read part of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm not going to read it just yet. Let me tell you a story. Do they still read, do you high school students, college students, do you still read the Scarlet Letter? Nodding heads, that is such good news. Okay, the Scarlet Letter, if you don't remember it, if you've never read it, is the story. Uh, it's set in the uh, I guess the 18th century. It's a story of two people, Hester Prynne and Arthur Dimsdale, who happens to be a preacher, Hester Prynne and Arthur Dimsdale, they have an affair. Hester gets pregnant by the affair, has the baby, and of course everybody knows she's had an affair because she is not married. And so for the rest of her life, she has the child, and for the rest of her life, she wears the scarlet letter. She wears an A on her chest. Arthur Dimsdale was not willing to come clean, uh, but he lives with a stricken conscience. And every night, it says later in the novel, he takes off his shirt and he carves an A into his chest. Nobody can see it. Nobody sees it. But he carves an A into his chest. He feels so guilty. He can't confess his sin, but nor can he get past it. He is secretly ashamed of what he has done. And friends, I think Arthur Demsdale is like a metaphor for so many of us. We are secretly ashamed of what we have done, what we have looked at. We're ashamed of the affair we had, our porn addiction, our past, our fantasies, are present, and we live in the closet, hidden, carving A's in our chest because we feel so ashamed and so guilty. Well, in 1 Corinthians 6, this is amazing from a theological perspective. In 1 Corinthians 6, the Apostle Paul names so many different ways, I'll read them in just a moment, of our sexual brokenness. And then it's like he takes all of the tools in his theological and gospel arsenal. He takes all of these tools. I'm going to demonstrate as many as I can. He takes all of these tools and he puts them together like a theological artillery to blow the doors off our sexual shame and our sexual guilt. To call the Arthur Demsdales into the light of the healing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look with me. I'll first read verses 9, 10, and 11. Or do you not know, the Apostle Paul writes, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's bad news so far. Verse 11. This is one of my favorite verses in all the New Testament. And such were some of you. (laughs) And And I would say, and such all of us. And such were all of us. But then what does he go on to say? Verse 11, you were washed, which is to say your sins have been removed by Jesus. He goes on to say, "What you were sanctified, which is to say you were made holy. Then he goes on to say, you were justified. This all in one verse. Declared righteous before the throne of God. And then the last part, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are united to Jesus. But he's not yet done. Look with me at the middle. I won't read it all, but look with me at the middle of verse 13. Middle of verse 13, he writes this The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. That's what we've been saying, right? Sex has a context. It's meant for marriage, it's not for immorality. We're to use our bodies the way that God designed them. But then he doesn't say just the body is for the Lord. I love this. The last line of verse 13 it's not just that the body is for the Lord, the Lord is for the body. The Lord is for your body and mine. God is for you, whatever you have done. Jesus became a body for your healing and redemption of your body. The Apostle Paul is not done yet, though. Verse 14, now he comes to the resurrection. God raised the Lord Jesus and will one day raise us up by his power. Whatever sexual sin, Jesus was raised from the dead for that. And we'll raise you one day. And then verse 17, he returns to our vital connection. He who has joined the Lord becomes one spirit with him. You are united to Christ. And then the crescendo, I'll read verse 18 to the end, verse 20 here. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You see, Jesus entered our darkness that we might walk in the light. He was stripped naked on the cross so that we can be clothed in his righteousness. He was shamed so that we could hold our head high. He was broken so that we could be healed. He died and bought us so that we can know the fullness of life and redemption. Whatever you have done, in Christ, you can be and are forgiven. Whatever shames you, Jesus covers the shame. Whatever regrets you have, Jesus can heal. And if you are a victim, as I know many in the sound of my voice are, if you are a victim of sexual abuse, rape, whatever it is, the good news of Jesus, it is difficult, but it has defined the resources for healing, even with the terrible things that have been done to you. It's good news for the body, the redemption of sex. Now, because all of us are sexually broken people, I want to close with one of my favorite stories. I've told it to you before, although it's been a couple of years. And this is my hope for us as a church, for our culture. One of my favorite preachers to listen to and tell stories is a man named Tony Campolo. And Tony Campolo lives in Pennsylvania, and he has the best stories. And he was speaking in Hawaii, he's from Pennsylvania, and he flew to Hawaii to speak at a conference in Honolulu. And so because he's from Pennsylvania, he wakes up in the middle of the night, two in the morning, he leaves his hotel, and he finds his way into a diner. And about 2.30, he's in his diner basically alone, drinking coffee in the middle of the night, and at about 2.30, a bunch of women start pouring in, and they kind of chit-chat with each other, they're at a table away from his, and then they file out around 3.15. And after they leave, Tony Campolo asks the owner of the diner, who are those people? He said, those are prostitutes who are just getting off their shift, and they come here to connect with one another, make sure everyone is safe, make sure everyone is back before they go home for the evening. Campolo wakes up the next night, uh, in the middle of the night, so he goes back to the same diner, same thing happens, 2.30 in the morning, but this time he starts to listen in to what these prostitutes are saying, and one of them, a woman named Renee, is having a birthday the next day. And she makes the comment to the other girls in the group that no one has ever thrown her a birthday party. Campolo takes note of it. So the next night, he wakes up again. And this time, he's gone ahead, and he's bought a birthday cake, and he's brought it to the diner. (laughs) They don't know this man, okay? Uh, The women start to walk in, and he presents this cake to Renee. And they all together start singing in the middle of the night, Hallelujah, happy birthday to you. I should make you sing it, but I'm not. Happy birthday to Renee. Renee, is tears are streaming down her face. She grabs the cake. She mutters, no one's ever thrown me a birthday party. I've got to go tell my mom. She picks up the cake and runs out of the diner. (laughs) Okay, so here it is, the owner of the the diner, a bunch of prostitutes but not Renee, and then a preacher, Tony Campolo. Very awkward moment. Middle of the night, hallelujah. (laughs) Tony Campolo, he's sleep-deprived. It's the middle of the night. He's sleep-deprived. He doesn't know what to do, so he does what preachers do, the reflex that we all do. He just says, let us pray. <laughs> and, and he begins to pray, and he prays for Renee, and he prays for these women, and he prays for the flourishing and the healing. You know, let kingdom come, thy will be done on Hawaii, in Halalulu as it is in heaven. he prays, that, especially that Renee would know the healing and the love of Jesus. And then he says, amen. And he looks up, and the owner is incensed. He says, who are you? And what church do you come from? And Tony says, I come from the church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes in the middle of the night. I have two things to say in closing. One, for all of us who are sexually broken, there is hope and there is healing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So glorify God in your body. But secondly, as a church, let's throw some birthday parties. Amen. Let me pray for us. Our great God, this is a tender subject for all of us and especially for some of us. God, would you draw near to those folks especially. I pray that they would find folks to talk to even today to talk about the pain, the hurt they've experienced. But in the midst of that, Lord, I pray for all of us that we would embrace the theology of our bodies, the theology of sex that you have given to us, that we might live lives that are honoring to one another and glorifying to you. Would we be a bright, shining candle to a world that is so broken and confused around this tender topic? Would you do it, Lord, for your name's sake? And I pray that your kingdom would come, your will would be done on the North Shore in Chicago as it is in heaven. Amen.